You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I can't believe this. This is actual live, huh? Well, it's not going out yet, but it will. Are you taping it then? Or? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> when can I see this? <laughs> I'll go home and watch it and say, boy, wow. Hey, Mom, I got on the set today, you know. <laughs> what are you doing, Beaver? Uh, what do I do? Well, I'm kind of the Beaver Rich Little. That's what I do. I do a lot of performing. See, uh, Olivia Newton-John, I sing like her. Ladies and gentlemen, Olivia Newton-John. Are you filming this? Yeah, all America's watching. Oh, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. <laughs> I've never been on the set before. <laughs> I love hamming it up, you can tell. face down and then I'm kind of working on, on, the, on the voice hey hey Clarissa Clarissa how about some of that Larry why don't you do a deaf mute and shut up <laughs> Jeez, that's a good one deaf mute everyone changes be my friend haven't you got the time I remember just loving it. That's an amazing film. People just didn't know what to say. I had no idea any of this was going to happen. This is Trent Harris, and this is a movie about his movie, the one-of-a-kind 84-minute underground cult film, The Beaver Trilogy. Out in the parking lot, there's a guy. I turn the camera on him, and we start talking. I love impersonating, and my gosh, if I made the tube, I just thank you so much. <laughs> he went back to his hometown of Beaver and set up a talent show to do his impersonation of Olivia Newton-John. And I had no idea at that point that it would change my entire life. He remade the documentary, but he used actors. Riggs to me, he was trying to cast it, and I knew this actor, this actor, Sean Penn. And then he remade it again with Crispin Glover. 
and then he put them all together as the Beaver trilogy, and it's just incredible. When can I see this? <laughs> but for years, it was a secret tape. And then there's this huge question, and I still wonder about it. At the end, you have him calling the director character up and asking to call it off, and then he tries to kill himself. And you're saying that just dramatic purpose? The film left people wondering, what happened to that poor kid? You know, how many films do you find that that's the way they end, and you want to put an end on them? I'd read an article on it. The name they used was Groovin' Gary, and I had no idea it was my uncle. These pieces, the way they kept haunting him. I learned this thing of listening to your visitors. It's amazing, those points. Points. Taking a whole direction you never thought would happen. I understand the idea. If I had a chance to do it again, how would I do it? He came up with an idea. He said, hey, we ought to do part four. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Rain Alexander. Hello. How are y'all? Also back in the booth is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Hello. Happy to be here. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at the Beaver Trilogy, Trent Harris's collection of three short films. The first is something of a documentary, while the second and third retell the first. That may sound a little confusing, but we'll get things sorted out before we're done. I'm not sure if there's any spoilers to be had on this episode, so just deal with it. Bill, when was the first time you saw the Beaver Trilogy, and what did you think? I started with The Orkley Kid, which I had rented from Kim's Video in 96. I had been a big Crispin Glover fan uh, after seeing River's Edge, and uh, so I had read about The Orkley Kid, and I was looking for that. Uh, and when I finally saw it, I just became uh, obsessed with it. Uh, if you've ever received a personal email from me and wondered where The Orkley comes from in my email address, it's because of uh, my uh, love of that film. And I did a screening of it in college, and I got a copy of it from Trent Harris. That was kind of my big cult film. And then when I found out about the Beaver trilogy years later, I didn't get to see it until it started making the rounds of the bootlegs. I didn't get a chance to see it on the big screen, but I, I bought a, uh, I think I bought a DVDR of it at a chiller theater convention. And it really astonished me because it was surreal to see, first of all, surreal to see Sean Penn doing the character. Um, I knew that he had shot a version of it on videotape back in the 90s. I'd heard about this, but I didn't think it ever would surface. And then to see the real Groovin' Gary doing that footage for real totally changed the way the Crispin Glover reinterpretation played for me. And it was actually even somehow better than this film that I had been obsessing about for years, actually see the real version of it. I'd never had anything equivalent to see like a documentary uh, of something that I knew just as a quote unquote fictional film, but it impressed me uh, uh, very much so. And, uh, and Beaver Trilogy 4 also, which I guess we'll talk about even more than that. How about you, Ryan? I came to the whole Beaver trilogy really, really late. Um, I too was a big Crispin Glover fan from early on, River's Edge, obviously. And, um, you know, uh, and I, I remember seeing that episode of Letterman where, you know, he comes out and throws his foot directly at Letterman's face. And I'm like, what did I just see? So I'm, you know, like I was there in that moment. And of course, you know, that led me to watch Ruben and Ed, which I didn't really appreciate as much at the time, I think, as, as I might now. 
But I was like, oh, what is this like weird Republican masculinist, you know, errand film that they're doing here? I'm not really sure what these characters are, but I still enjoyed it. And I still really, really, you know, followed Crispin for years after that. And, you know, that led me to Plan 10 from Outer Space, which I fell completely in love with and is easily my favorite Trent Harris film. And I really kind of held off, even after I started hearing more about Beaver Trilogy in the early 2000s, more intensely as like as a collection, I I kind of resisted a little bit because my personal investment in this is that I came from a Mormon family that was from, I was born in Utah and I'm also a trans woman. And so like I had some very like squeaky feelings about like what I was going to see when I finally saw this uh, thing that everybody just, you know, loved so much. And so, yeah, it took me a long time to, to finally get around to it. And uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that I got the full collection all together and got to see them playing up against each other and see more about the dialogue they had with each other, right? Um, and of course, like the documentary uh, really, I think, does an amazing job at connecting all those dots. I also came to this very late. I had read about the Orkley Kid and the Beaver Kid, I want to say in Film Threat Video Guide, for sure, in Shock Cinema. I'd been in the gray market business for a little while, so... I saw people trading it. I think possibly on Don Alexander's site, he had a whole thing about the Beaver trilogy. So I, I saw screen grabs. I felt like I had already seen it when I finally sat down and watched it, though I was not nearly as prepared as I should have been. That dialogue that the three films have. So you watch the first section of it and you see the real Groove and Gary. And it's like, okay, what am I watching? What is this? And and experience this whole world that he has and his interpretation of Xanadu and of uh, Living Newton-John. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm with this. And then to reset, it's like the timeline resets. And then suddenly Sean Penn has been transported into this and is doing this spot-on impersonation of Groove and Gary, who kind of reminds me of Jeff Spicoli a little bit, and this is right around the Spicoli time. Are you typing it then? or? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> when can I see this? <laughs> I'll go home and watch it and say, boy, wow. Hey, Mom, I got on the set today, you know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Stu, I did battle with some humongous waves. But, you know, just like I told the guy on ABC, danger is my business. <laughs> And then reset the timeline again, and now we have Crispin Glover. Like you guys, huge Crispin Glover fan, had been a fan of his ever since Back to the Future and then River's Edge and just pretty much anything that I ever saw him in. I was always just super excited whenever he would show up in anything, especially he didn't belong. Like when he shows up in uh, Charlie's Angels, I'm just like, okay, why is he here? But I'm really happy he's here because it, he doesn't fit with this world and he he was wonderful in it. I watched the Beaver Trilogy and then rolled right into Beaver Trilogy Part 4. So I was there with all of these questions, and then to have Beaver Trilogy Part 4 there to answer them immediately. So I am very curious, especially, Bill, your experience of having the Orkley Kid in your life for so long, and then to experience the rest of this. can't imagine seeing something play out as a narrative, and then see the real-life version of it happen. I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. 
think of any film that you love that's like a cult film. And, and that was a film that like, I knew other Crispin Glover fans, but because Orkley Kid was only distributed in gray market channels, I mean, you know, you never ran into someone else that knew it. So you, anybody that was a, uh, a fan of some of his offbeat stuff, you could show them that film and it's like, oh, it's got, George McFly, it's got Dottie from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, it's got Malachi showing up in the bathroom from Children of the Corn, like it has all these faces that 80s kids would know. But then it was also like quirky enough, because I mean, his cult following is always, you know, the the odd character, but then it's also much more kind of emotional, uh, sincere character than he usually wound up playing post Back to the Future. Like he tended to go for a lot more off-putting characters. And we can talk about Ruben, but I mean, you know, the character in the Orkley kid is very sympathetic and, uh, like an underdog that you root for. It was just a film that I really kind of cherished because it was, you know, one that really showed that he, could be more than just a cartoon eccentric, which I think he sometimes shows up in films like The Doors, just playing, you know, or Wild at Heart, like just playing one kind of quirky note and then he's out. To see that it was actually rooted in a real person and a person with his own kind of unique charisma was kind of shocking. And to see scenes that I knew by heart from a, a dramatized version. And then, you know, the Bieber trilogy four, I, I saw much after that, you know, to have those like, information about his own like the real life person and the the suicide attempt and all these kind of darker things that i i took for granted that there was creative license i never thought it was rooted in someone's real tragedy i just it was a little murky what the real story was when i saw the orkley kid but i knew that it was something that trent harris had tried doing in the past but i mean details were kind of vague at the time that i saw it i mean we've seen filmmakers remake their work time and again and this has gone on since some of the earliest days of cinema, you know, and recent examples of like funny games or going back to the man who knew too much. I want to say that the guy who directed The Vanishing redirected the American version. So you've got this example of people doing this, but I've never seen somebody shoot what amounts to a documentary and then shoot it as a fictional film and then reshoot it as another fictional film. And those changes between the three, you brought up the dialogue between the three films and it is just really interesting to see how things change and to watch these back to back and be like, okay, you notice how he's doing this here or like, especially the end, the end is so different between the three of them, but it's such an interesting thing to see a filmmaker make the same film three times. It almost feels like it's some sort of a dogma experiment. That's funny you say that because I was thinking this time through that um, it reminded me a lot of the five obstructions, the Von Trier experiment, except I like, <laughs> <laughs> I like the Beaver trilogy. And I don't really, I mean, like I see what you're going for, Lars, you know, great. You're making it harder on yourself every time, but everything on that is so overthought. And, you know, and I think that when you're doing something, I mean, Trent Harris captured that lightning in a bottle with his first thing. And then he has to try and figure out what to do with it with these other two attempts, you know, and Von Trier wishes he could get that lucky. This time when I was watching it, I don't know, I, I thought of um, Superstar, the Todd Haynes film for some reason. And I think it's because maybe if you describe it to somebody, certainly I, I think of the Orkley kid, I think, you know, whenever I would tell people, oh, it's Crispin Glover, as a character who dresses up like Liv Newton-John and the town that turns on him, it sounds like it's going to be some, I don't know what people imagine it to be, but they don't expect it to be a moving and sympathetic thing. But also the, you know, and, and like the same thing with Superstar, like the, oh, it's Karen Carpenter story acted up by Barbie dolls. It sounds like it's a joke, but then you deal with real pain 
and you use the bubblegum music in like an ironic counterpoint way so that it becomes like it gets away with using these songs kind of maybe in a in a deeper way than maybe people would perceive them from just the radio. I definitely have had that Olivia Newton-John song stuck in my head like all month since we've been preparing for this. Watching the three of them and then part four right afterwards, it was like, oh my God, how many times have I heard this song today? <laughs> we'll probably touch on the endings, but one thing that the first take on the material with the original Groove and Gary is the um, it ends with that Barry Manilow cover, the New York City Rhythm. And what's interesting is that it changes the way the Olivia Newton-John performance plays for me, because you see it as another character that he does in terms of musical context. It gets unclear when that performance is happening. Is like that after the talent show? Is that their warm-up gig? Like, it, is that a different day? Like, it's, but it, it, it changes it, you know, removing that, it makes the Olivia Newton-John character like essential you know, an essential part of the Sean Penn and Crispin Glover characters' lives. Whereas I don't know, it's more open to the uh, interpretation of the viewer, like how much Olivia Newton-John means to Groove and Gary. It's really strange to me that Trent Harris is a character within his own movie. You know, it's not played by Trent Harris, but there is a Trent Harris character in both versions. And that he's a villain is something that's really interesting as well, that it's I guess he's making a comment about himself that he feels bad about this because he is very much, and please um, uh, feel free to correct me, but I see that character as a villain in both the Orkla Kid and Beaver Kid too. I think that's true. I think that's what he's definitely trying to create a, a more cinematic experience, right? So creating that conflict between the antagonist and, and our, our hero, or, or maybe it's an anti-hero. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I feel like he's dealing with his own existential crisis with being a filmmaker in this, right? Like he's trying to figure out where he fits in and what his responsibility is to whatever the story is, whatever this person is. Because we've seen this kind of exploitation of people before. I mean, I remember when uh, the documentary about Tiffany fans, um, I think we're allowed now. Yeah, when that came out, I was so uncomfortable watching that movie because I just felt like everybody in, in it was being exploited. We've seen documentaries about people where we're, we're supposed to find them funny because they are different from us, and it leaves me feeling uncomfortable. I mean, there are other movies where you watch it and you're like, okay, this person's a little quirky, this is interesting, you know, you watch uh, Winnebago Man. It's like, all right, I find this guy funny, but he seems to have all of his faculties together. I watch Great Gardens, and I'm a little bit on the edge. So it is very much this com comment on... Here's Groove and Gary. Did I exploit Groove and Gary? And he's kind of exploring that in these other two. So yeah, it's, it's a really interesting way, like you said, to work out your own issues, but working it out as a filmmaker, it's the only really way you know how to. His pre-Beaver Trilogy documentary work, um, the things he was doing for extra for television, I mean, were things like documentaries on Chief Rolling Thunder, who was this old man that was building a house out of airplane parts and pieces of concrete. And he did something on Melvin Dumar, the character that, you know, the, the real life person that, you know, is the uh, subject of Melvin and Howard. Um, he did something that you can find online on Joyce McKinney, who later became an Errol Morris subject in tabloid. Um, he was using eccentric real life subjects that people thought maybe were liars or people that were the joke could be on them for talking to Trent Harris. And I think that he 
has always said that like he didn't look to make fun of anybody and he was not looking to make fun of Groove and Gary either. But definitely when you hear, you know, that you are subject after you say you're not going to run the footage or not going to, or you are going to run the footage, they shoot themselves. I'm sure that has to play into some kind of heavy responsibility, even if he begs off and says, oh, well, you know, this guy was exploiting me too. He, he brought me to film this. He knew what he was getting into. It still seems like he's wrestling with that and making himself the villain and giving happy and increasingly kind of defiant endings to his subject. Yeah, I think it's him working that out, like telling a happier and happier version of what in his mind must be kind of a sad story. Some of what we're talking around really taps into some of my initial resistance to seeing the film, you know. Because, you know, I hear like all of the shock cinema kind of, of attraction to it was like, oh, this like freaky situation happens. And then, you know, boom, he comes out and he's dressed as a living new John. And, you know, it's, 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 this is something, especially in the late eighties was pretty typical for Hollywood to make fun of, you know, and as somebody who was coming out as trans and dealing with, with my identity at that time, it was such a scary time to, you know, have to, to, to talk about these things because it was instant shunning, you know, especially if you're dealing with like a Mormon realm like I was, right? In watching the documentary, it, you know, occurred to me that like, you know, I don't necessarily think that Dick Griffiths would necessarily identify as trans even now, right? But like, is still struggling with some aspect of that. And I think it's really clear in the film where it's just like, oh my God, here I am and I'm doing this thing and the weight of it, right? The weight of me appearing in this kind of descends. Sean Penn is able to kind of do it in this like aloof way. And then Crispin Glover brings kind of this like seediness to it, you know? And I mean, it's really, really, really common for people that are struggling with their gender identity to attempt suicide, right? And so to hear Dick's story about attempting to kill himself in, in such a way resonated with me in a way that I didn't expect. You know, that was definitely a piece of the documentary that, that shocked me more than anything. I mean, but this is the weight of like the gender binary, you know, that like we all are negotiating whether we're conscious of it or not. And, you know, and I just think this adds, the, especially with that documentary story and like talking with the family, it really adds a lot more gravitas to the whole thing that, you know, I don't think I could ever even have believed when I was hearing my psychotronic friends talk about it in, you know, the 90s and early 2000s. The first chapter was 79, the next one was 81, and the third one was 85. You're talking about the height of gay panic in movies. You know, maybe the 90s were worse, but I think the 80s were probably the, let's say, golden age of gay panic. It is as soon as we meet Groove and Gary and he goes in and he's getting his makeup done to be Olivia Newton-John. I mean, there is just such a, I'm not gay. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not gay. I'm not gay. And it's just like, oh, wow, you're really protesting this like too much. But at the same time, I think people can be comfortable in their masculinity and wear women's clothes. But at this time, and like you said, in this area of the country in Mormon country, yeah, it had to have been just awful for him to even want to do this. And this was, it felt like it was a bit for him, but then at the same time, yeah, I think he was really exploring things. <laughs> I still am a man. I'm doing outrageous things, but I, I enjoy being a guy. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> but it's, 
Yes, I do. I've got to convince the audience that I have not gone crazy. It's just for fun. His family does talk in the documentary about how he would appear as Olivia at like what school talent shows, that kind of a thing. So this isn't an unknown quantity to the people around him. But I'm thinking about like, what is it about committing that to videotape, you know, to film, whatever it was, uh, whatever he was shooting on. I want to say it was video because wasn't it him trying out a new video camera when he caught Groovin' Gary? And that was interesting to me just because I'm a nerd because I was just like, oh, that was probably when they were using three quarter and they're just and it didn't look like a tube camera, even though it might have been because you didn't have that after image like you see in things like um, another state of mind where it was like the tube cameras versus the the, the non tube, uh, the ones that I might have used when I was out shooting commercials. But unfortunately, I never got to meet anybody as interesting as Groove and Gary. I, I'm also curious where the Groove and Gary name comes from versus Dick, because again, he's almost like adding another layer of personality. Like if I go by this name, I have this ability and then I can also move into this Olivia Newton-John or Barry Manilow persona a little bit easier. It's like a transition. It's like a switch that goes on. And when the switch goes on, I feel like another person. Pseudonyms are great for protecting people that are a little vulnerable, too. So I'm very curious, Bill, as far as you having seen Orkley Kid and then moving into Beaver Trilogy and then finally seeing Beaver Trilogy Part 4, I had a list of questions that I was keeping in my mind, and Beaver Trilogy Part 4 pretty much answered every single thing. But for you, having lived with this for a lot longer, what was your experience of seeing the documentary about this series of films that you had experienced a lot? The first thing I thought, well, because Trent Harris came to Philly to show uh, Beaver Trilogy and uh, Beaver Trilogy 4. And I met him between the trilogy screening and the and the trilogy part four. And I, of course, went up to him and told him how much I love the Beaver Trilogy. So when part four opens with him saying how sick he is of talking about the Beaver Trilogy, my heart sank. I'm like, I'm just one more of these people that keeps him talking about this thing that he's tired of talking about. But... Um, once that self-consciousness lifted, um, I found it like absolutely absorbing just to get this degree of detail and details that you feel like Trent Harris himself might not necessarily want out there. Like you can see that, was it This American Life? Like that, like that one interview with him where he's telling the interviewer to shut up. It's like he's so uncomfortable talking about it that he just loses all composure. I, I wonder if Olivia Newton-John is aware of any of this, if that ever wound up on her radar. I mean, I do wonder like what some of the actors uh, now think about it. I met Crispin Glover once and I asked him about it. And I think I think when I told him I bought a copy of the Orkley Kid off Trent Harris, he like snapped at me and said he shouldn't be selling those. So I don't know what the story is there. Just having some kind of happy ending to what, again, like felt like I was getting all this increasingly sad information, not only just about Griffiths passing away, you know, at a young age from a heart attack, um, but even just Trent Harris's own career going in a, a direction he wasn't totally, uh, didn't seem totally happy with after the failure commercially of Ruben and Ed, and then uh, having trouble to raise funds for things. But it has this kind of happy ending. Both Trent Harris seems like a better person now, and even the the memory of, of, of Groove and Gary, like he 
he died knowing that, you know, he was beloved by fans of this film, like it wasn't something for him to be ashamed of. And even that his um, that screenings, you know, fund ch- like a charitable cause with like the, ch- the Cambodian uh, Children's Fund. I mean, it, it's it has this kind of heart tugging quality to it that I wasn't really expecting because I didn't know what it was going to be when I said I didn't read up on it in advance. I just knew more Beaver trilogy. I'm like, what more could they do with this? It was really surprising, like how moving it was. And it changes the way that the Beaver trilogy plays for me now, too, as well as the Orkley kid. I feel like I'm so inured to the ways documentaries are made that I didn't expect to get emotionally caught up in this one the way that I did. And they were, I think, a little manipulative to like, um, to tell the, the story of the shooting, for example, the way that they did. So like <laughs> they dropped that piece and then I'm just like, oh, what? You know? And then I check and I'm like, wait, there's more than half the film left to go. So what happens after he shot himself in the chest? I mean, I, in, in many ways, I'm, I'm glad that it took that slightly manipulative tangent, you know, to, to just build that suspense of like, well, what's going to happen? Like, is he going to die in shame? Is this going to be uh, like the overarching tragedy of it? And, you know, and again, coming from a position where so many people that are gender variant are ending their lives in tragedy, like, you know, I don't want that to be the end of that story, but like, I can definitely see how it would be. And so, of course, it leads to this um, ending where he does get to connect with his audience and being given this hero's welcome. That's just the best, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just the best way that, that's the best possible outcome from all of this particular situation that we're in. Before they said that he had died from a heart attack. So after, after they tell us that he had shot himself in the chest, but then survives. And before we find out about his heart attack, I'm just like, okay. This is going to end with that screening at Sundance with Groove and Gary coming up, and that's going to be the end of the movie. And here's Groove and Gary today. So I was so disappointed when it didn't end that way, but I was also like, okay, yeah, because yeah, like you, I'm just like, all right, I've seen this documentary before, but then it goes off in a whole different place. And to your point, Bill, learning more about Harris's career and especially post the failure of Ruben and Ed and just how did Plan 10 come together and just all of these things. I was like, wow, I did not expect to be going to freaking Cambodia on this trip. Where, where did this come from? So it was, it, it was a very, very surprising doc because like you, Rain, I'd seen so many docs that it's just like, okay, we're going to follow the formula. Okay. Here's the introduction. We're going to get a little bit of this. Then we're going to get the big question and then we're going to start to, you know, investigate the past. No, Brad did a great job of, of avoiding a lot of those cliches just because I don't think that Trent Harris and Griven Gary were cliches. It's even little pieces of that, of that film where, uh, early on he's speaking to, uh, Dick's sister and she's at the kitchen table and she's like, look, I'm only going to tell you this because I've built trust with you. I mean, this is like the message that she's sending. So, you know, you're ready for like this very like heavy background, you know, to, to accompany it and, um, certainly set the, set the stage for it to be something that was a lot more tragic in the end than it ended up being. Yeah. I was glad that even though Dick isn't with us anymore, that it was still a happy ending celebrates him even more than i mean that was the thing i i think i walked into it thinking might it might like you know uh be slightly like a vehicle to celebrate the uncompromising trent harris but it's much more a love letter to groove and gary 
he finds that balance, that Brad finds that balance that is because you could turn either way or you could go maudlin or you could just be like, oh, Trent Harris, this groundbreaking underground filmmaker. You could go so many different ways, but he manages to tread that line so well that I, I just I really have to applaud him. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from director Trent Harris. After that, we'll hear from the director of Beaver Trilogy Part 4, Brad Besser, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Fun, a family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B movie reel. Shoot it! Shoot it! <laughs> That's about describes it. Yeah. All right, everybody, stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones, the ones that air on Saturday night. Being known throughout the ages is an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator. A uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from <laughs> flying limbs. I called them. it in my notes. <laughs> what could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since there've been over two hundred of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. At this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. Our future depends on it. Make it safe. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. You've had so many different phases to your career. Do you mind if I ask you, how did you get your start in filmmaking? Gosh, my first job I ever had was, I think I was about eight years old, and I was cha- changed the marquee at the 
romance theater in Rexburg, Idaho. And for that, they'd give me a bag of popcorn and I could watch all the movies for free. So, you know, I, I saw like every John Wayne, Elvis Presley, Doris Day movie that was ever made, I think. And then when I got into college, I saw a film I, by accident that I'd never seen anything like it before. It was a, a Bergman film, Seventh Seal. And I went, what in the hell is this? You know, it's not in English. It's in black and white. So I found the only film professor and I went and asked him about it. And he said, I said, you know, I'm really interested in this. So he just literally handed me a camera and he said, well, go, go make a film. And so I, and then I went out in the hall. I was really excited. I, I would have been about 17 at the time. And then he said, I, I realized I didn't even know how to turn the camera on. I went back in. He says, look through this part and push this button and it'll. So I went out to the salt flats and I filmed mud. That was, there's a, interesting kind of mud patterns and then I brought it back and I painted the basketball white and then projected the, <laughs> the mud onto the basketball it was brilliant I was only 17 and you know I was so hooked I never stopped I think I've worked on a film just damn near every day since one way or another I'm, a, I'm just uh, it's what makes me the happiest yeah I was really happy watching uh, Beaver Trilogy Part 4 and just hearing about the way that you work and the way that you try to take all those different influences and make them into something. I think that's exactly right. Just take what's around you. And, you know, I don't know exactly how I work. I just try to make movies that I would like. So I get interested in something and away I go. You said that you're sick and tired of talking about the Beaver trilogy. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> how did Ruben and Ed get made without the Beaver trilogy? being out there the beaver trilogy never really got out there until the year 2000 uh you know i'd made the film and then kind of hid it away and then finally in 2000 sundance called me up and said they wanted to show it and that that's kind of when it started but reuben and ed was 91 i think wasn't it something like that so it was reuben and ed was a good four or five years or gosh eight or nine years before beaver trilogy so how did you end up getting the funding and and being able to make Ruben and Ed. You know, I'd gotten so sick of Hollywood that I decided that I was going to write a screenplay that was so simple. I could go back to Utah and shoot it in the desert with my friends. If I had to do it on eight millimeter, I didn't care. I was going to do it. So I wrote this very simple script and I gave it, I was still living in Los Angeles. I gave it to my agent and she said, this is pretty funny. She gave it to a producer. Uh, he optioned it that day. And our first meeting, we went into uh, uh, Columbia TriStar, and they bought it. I mean, it was really crazy after after working for, you know, 10 years and never getting anything to happen. Uh, Ruben and Ed actually happened really – after it was written, it actually happened pretty quick. It took me a year to write it. but Why do you think that is? Why did that one catch the imagination where other ones didn't? The script was funny, and I also think that part of what was going on was that Sex, Lies, and Videotape had just been a big hit at Sundance, I think in, what was it, 88 or something like that, or 85, or I, anyway, somewhere in the mid-80s. And and that movie was made for, I it was, I think, under $2 million or something, and it grossed an enormous amount of money, and it was picked up there at Sundance. So there was kind of a buzz going around Hollywood is why are we spending 25, 30, 40 million dollars on movies when we could make 20 movies for a million dollars and one of them might hit. So there was a, there was a group, very small, kind of small budget films that came out of that. The problem was, is that they, with a small budget film, they didn't know how to market it. 
you know, but, uh, that was one of the problems. But so there was quite a few things that came out, uh, in that little period of time there, million, two million dollar type films. You know, it's no risk for them. How did they market that movie? They didn't really. I mean, the damn thing came out like, I think it was the weekend of the LA riots. It opened and, oh God, you know, nobody wanted to go to watch a movie about two Republicans trying to bury a frozen cat. It just didn't seem to strike the right chord. (laughs) And then the critics just hated it. You know, it wasn't that they didn't like it. It was that they hated it. You know, it played very, I think it played a week in LA and then they pulled it. It was too bad because I had another movie that had been kind of green lit called Zizix. And after the critics trashed uh, Ruben and Edsabad, they they uh, pulled the plug on this other film that I had going on. What was that one about? It was at the end of the world kind of pioneer beauty pageant that took place in a small town in Idaho. And there was this big kind of Zizix, which is sort of an astrolog, uh, kind of like a comet heading towards the earth. And everybody saw it and everybody knew that, you know, the end was near in the next three days. And this small town decides to go on with their pioneer pageant. <laughs> so I, 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 it's quite a fun script, but yeah. Never got made. Was Reuben and Ed, was that the first time that you worked with Karen Black? Yes. What a delightful person. You know, she was just, I just loved that woman. She was great. When when I did Plan 10, which was about, you know, I think it was three or four years after Reuben and Ed, I was back in Salt Lake and she called me up and she said, I heard you're making a movie, Trent. And I said, yeah, Karen, but I don't have any money. you got to realize this is, and she said, I don't care. I'm coming up there on Friday. Make sure there's a part. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. She was so great. How was it working with Howard Hessman? Well, he was kind of a pain in the ass, actually, but he was so good. But he was always complaining and grumpy. And I think he – I didn't know what I was doing and because it was the first time I had ever tried to direct a feature film. And he wouldn't cut me a, an ounce of slack for anything. <laughs> he was always – but he did such a wonderful job that it's just fine, you know. But, oh, man, I wouldn't want to do it again. And I know you had worked with Crispin Glover before, but how was that having him in this lead role, this kind of bigger, well, yeah, bigger budget film? Well, I mean, it was bigger than Beaver Trilogy, but or Orkley Kids stuff, but it was a tiny budget film still. It was fine. I mean, it was it was hard. I don't want to work with movie stars ever again, unless they're like Karen Black. <laughs> then I will, but. And I'm not just saying this about Crispin. It's just, it's almost all of the kind of movie star people that I knew were no fun to work with at all. I mean, Sean Penn, same thing. Sean's a great guy and did wonderful work and all that stuff. But man, those guys are a handful, if you can imagine. (laughs) Well, that's the thing about Plan 10 that I like so much is that it feels like everybody there is having a good time and all there for the movie. And it feels like... So many people in that movie are just so fearless about whatever they're doing. You know, most of those people aren't trained actors at all. They were my friends, basically. And when I left Hollywood, I I made a – I was so angry at that place. I kind of made a, a promise to myself that I would never uh, ask anyone for permission to make a film again. I was just going to go do it. And what I wanted to do was make films that I liked with people that I loved. That was my goal. And fuck it, the rest of it can just, you know, I don't care. So, and it really came through in Plan 10. I mean, the whole damn city of Salt Lake chipped in to make that movie. You said that you grew up where? Idaho, right? 
Yeah, a very small town in Idaho. And then he moved to Los Angeles. No, I moved to Salt Lake first. Went oh, you to went to Salt Lake first. first. Oh, okay. My mother, I, my, I moved with my mother. My mother was a, a reporter for small town papers and stuff like that. So I moved around with her a bit. We ended up in Salt Lake and then eventually I ended up in L.A. How was your reaction to just the way of life in Salt Lake? I mean, the way that the religion and the city come together, it just is such a different experience than I've had any place else in the United States. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, the thing is, is that Southern Idaho, where I grew up, is basically just an extension of Deseret. It's an extension of Salt Lake. So the culture I was very familiar with already, I knew, I knew what, you know, the whole nine yards. But yeah, it's, it's Salt Lake is an interesting place. I mean, there's a reason Brigham Young founded this place, and it was because there wasn't anything close to it. I mean, the closest city, I think, was, what, 700 miles from here? So he was able to really isolate this area, and uh, he wanted to start his own country. You know, there's a very kind of unique culture that's that's come up here in Salt Lake City, which is actually fostering. I think with uh, kind of oppressive societies can really foster an interesting underground May not be large, but boy, there's some good artists here. How did people take Plan 10? Because you're not necessarily making fun of Mormonism, but you are kind of playing around with it a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, Mormonism is quite a science, kind of science fiction sort of religion. But, you know, when it opened up here in Salt Lake, it was the number one film in the country for box office attendance. Now that, you know, obviously it was only playing on one screen, so it wasn't making a lot of money, but that one screen was making more money than any other single screen in America. And it went on for, it was huge. We sold like 10,000 tickets in a, in a, a very short period of time. And if I'd have been smart, we could have done a little bit more, but uh, it was, it was received really well here. In fact, there's still, there's a Mormon organization called Sunstone, which is kind of a, they call themselves the liberal Mormons, <laughs> the liberal intellectual Mormons. And they're going to show uh, Plan 10 again for its 25th anniversary, which is this year. You know, these things, I make them and they have a life of their own. Actually, uh, this coming Saturday, they're going to play Plan 10 from Outer Space in Amsterdam. They did a whole thing in Bucharest on uh, Plan 10 from Outer Space. It was just bizarre. I have no idea, actually. I love the beehive head. How did you manage to do that? How, what are the special effects behind that? Oh, it's just made out of rubber. The one that the eyeball moves, there's a little, like an airplane gear in there, like a model airplane. So you can, the little joystick makes the eyeball walk, wander around. But it was, I mean, it was really I, very low budget kind of effects. <laughs> Particularly those low budget effects have a real life of their own now that we're in this world of CGI where everything is, Looks so, you know, uh, real. It's really fun when it doesn't look real. You know, the flying saucer on a fish line can be really effective. Going back to Ruben and Ed, where did the cat come from? Well, the idea came from, I had a friend named Merrill Melfeth who was a bricklayer. And uh, I went over to his house one day and we were sitting out on the on the porch drinking beer and I, and I went in to get another beer and I opened up the freezer and there was a cat in the freezer. And I came out and said, Merrill, what the hell's going on here? And he said, well, Simon died and I haven't had a chance to bury him yet. And I didn't know what to do with him. So I put him in the freezer. Well, that kind of thing sticks in your brain, you know, 
And that's kind of how I write, or those kind of things happen to me, and I pay, you know, eventually they work their way into a film. The, the actual people that made the cat water ski and do that sort of thing were the Kyoto brothers. They also directed a film called, I think, Killer Clowns from Outer Space or something like that. They were very clever. They're like the Marx brothers running around in this warehouse in, in Burbank creating just all this, you know, wonderful, crazy stuff. So we hired them to make the cats. So what was that like for you when you got the call from Sundance and they're like, hey, we want to show the Beaver Trilogy? To tell you the truth, I said, no, I don't want to do it. You're going to show it at midnight, and I don't want to go up there at midnight. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 we'll give you a good a good time and screen it. And I said, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, Sundance is a great thing, but I don't think it's much fun, to tell you the truth. It's not a... Not an enjoyable experience for me to go up there very much. <laughs> it's sort of like everybody I hated in Hollywood in one room. <laughs> it screens at Sundance. Does it end up playing anyplace else? It plays continually. I mean, real for, the real thing where it really broke out was, uh, well, honestly, what had happened, I'll, I'll make a long story short here, is I was out of money in Salt Lake. I was going to have a little screening at a little theater here, and I decided to put the three films together and show them. And everybody went, what in the hell? It was really a different animal when the three of them were together like that. So I sent out some feelers, and a museum in in uh, San Francisco picked it up and said, we'd like to show the movie. And then that guy called the uh, Lincoln Center in New York and said, you got to show this movie. So it showed at the Lincoln Center, and then it got press and New York Times and stuff, and then boom, 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 it started playing at festivals all over the world. And that would have been the late 90s. And then 2000 was when it really sort of hit Sundance. And then it it plays, it's just continually, I screen it all the time. It's amazing how many little theaters and art houses. I mean, nothing big, but it just has a life of its own. These films I make take on a life of their own. I mean, I try to promote films, but I never luck, had any luck at doing it. They either work or they don't work. And then it's word of mouth and then they just go seemingly forever. I mean, there was a huge screening, what was it, last year, year before in Berlin, where they showed all three films on three different screens at the same time. So each one was on a different screen. And then there was another fellow that had made a spinoff that played on a fourth screen. So you could walk between the screens as these movies were going on. And then when the kid starts to sing, all of the screens sync up at that one moment. It was an extraordinary experience. There were people, I mean, Berlin, and there's people there dressed up like the Beaver Kids singing Olivia Newton-John songs. It was the damnedest thing. It was wonderful. That's one thing that I've really appreciated about you over the years is that I know where I can get your films at. I've ordered things from you before. I've always enjoyed that. I know that I could get, you know, Plan 10 from Outer Space or Ruben and Ed or now the Beaver Trilogy from you. Kudos to you for embracing mail order and now e-commerce. It's the only way that I've ever gotten my movies out. I mean, Ruben and Ed would be completely gone now if I hadn't done it because the studio won't release it. They won't do anything with it. It's small. What I do is very small, but it's continual. People can, you know, continue to buy DVDs and they continue to ask to screen the films at various theaters in Brooklyn or whatever. So it's, it's very small, but I control everything. So that's great. No middlemen. 
Well, I'm very curious about things like Delighted Water Universe and Luna Mesa and Welcome to the Rubber Room, because I was keeping up with you for a long time, and then you seemed to drop out for a little while, and then next thing I know, you've got three, well, I can't say new movies, but movies that I had never heard of are available on your site. Yeah, Luna Mesa is what, about... Uh, 10 years old, maybe, or something, something like that. I don't know. And they, they, I, you know, I just, uh, partly what happened is I didn't have any money and I didn't have a camera for a while, but then I got a job doing some documentaries and I bought a good camera and I just, just went out and started making films again as quickly as I could. They're all different. Luna Mesa is a real experiment. I just decided I'm going to do something completely different. And so, uh, you know, that's a very different film. I don't think the Life of Water universe works very well. Uh, there are parts of it that work, but I'm not crazy about that one. Rubber Room's a lot of fun. And then the stuff I'm doing right now, the Echo People, I just love. I think it it's a spinoff of Ruben and Ed, and it's been a lot of fun making that one. I only need two more days to finish shooting the damn thing. I, I'm doing it episodically. So I got one version or episode one, episode two, and almost all of episode three done, except I can't get out for the last two days to finish it because of this fucking virus. Are you doing that exclusively on YouTube or? I don't know what the hell I'm doing with it. I'm just making a movie to tell you the truth. I mean, I've just, I enjoy making films so much, so I made these the the two episodes I put out on YouTube, episode one and episode two. When I finish episode three, it will actually be a feature film. The three put together, and then I'll you know uh, I won't sell that either. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about the Beaver Trilogy Part Four. How did that come together for, uh, on your end of things? Brad Besser, young guy, I think he'd been a student of mine at one time or something, came in and said he wanted to interview me about the Beaver Trilogy. And I went, oh, God, here we go again. But I, he was a nice kid, and I said, sure. So he sat down, and he talked for about, I don't know, maybe an hour there in my office, and I thought it was done at that point. But he just kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And I think it went on for four, three or four years of him following me, I'd be in Cambodia and uh, and he'd come to Cambodia. I went to London and he came to London. I didn't really realize what he was doing at the time. And I thought, oh, well, you know, he's a good kid. (laughs) And then I I was very surprised when he said, oh, that movie got, uh, we got into Sundance with that movie. I said, really? I can't believe you did, but he did. As a filmmaker, how is it having a film made about you? Oh, it was a horrible experience. <laughs> I can't, I have such a hard time even watching it for so many different reasons. I made a film about myself once. I decided I was, it was another experiment. I've made documentaries about a, a lot of other people. I'm going to try to make one about myself. So I decided I'd go out and film actually what happened to me and see if it was at least half as interesting as an episode of Love Boat. So I spent a day doing it and it's one of the best films I ever made. Actually, it's called Naked reality it's only about 20 minutes long but it's really funny and it ends up being poignant that's it, that was an interesting experience you have been in the business now for so long you've been able to see how many things have changed what is your opinion as far as like where we're at now versus where we've been in the past well it's a lot easier for me to actually do something because I, I don't have to get millions of dollars to do it the bottleneck is always this you can create something it's Something, but it's the hardest part is getting anybody to pay attention to it. There is so much going on every second, 
you know, people got, you know, got their faces in their phones. There's like what a million YouTube downloads every hour or something. And then there's all of these Netflix and all of these streaming services and DVD. There's so much that getting in to, to break through that din is really the, the most difficult thing now. I think is make something and get somebody to pay attention to it. That's, that's the real trick. I mean, I've been able to kind of do it just basically because I've been around so goddamn long, you know, that I sort of have a little niche that people like, like yourself have heard of me and can, but oh man, I, I don't know how you'd do it if you're just getting started. Other than, I know mean, crash forward is about all you can do is crash forward and see what happens. I mean, I'd make movies because I really, really just, it makes me the happiest and and that's why I do it. So I'm not sitting out with a business plan about how I'm going to make a living doing this. I've managed to eke out a living for 45 years doing it, but you know, I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination. When the Beaver trilogy part four begins or when your story begins with that project, you're working for a, uh, a, a news channel or a news program, I should say. When are you able to quit your day job? I'm trying to think if I've ever had a day job. <laughs> I mean, that was the longest I ever worked was for that TV show. Uh, it was called Extra, and I, I spent about two and a half years there. And then everything since then has been freelance. The way I pay the rent or paid the rent was uh, doing documentary work. I worked for National, did produce National Geographic, NBC, a lot of stuff for uh, PBS out of New York. So that was kind of my bread and butter. And then I'd save my money and make these other goofy films. <laughs> I think it's a lot easier to spend your own money, get a job, save your money and make the film. It is a lot easier than going out and trying to raise funds, quite frankly. You know, just go make it. Well, and not just films. You've also done books and art projects and all this yeah. other stuff. I mean, how do you even find the time? Well, I just do it all day long. Well, one thing, I, you know how to say it, I think is a good way, is if you keep your life simple, your passions can be complex. So I live very cheaply, and I, I don't have a lot of things that I, I'm not married, I don't have children I have to raise, I don't have, uh, you know, alimony, all of that sort of thing. So I'm able to keep my life simple so that my, I can delve into these other things that make, make me so happy. Can you tell me a little bit about some of your books? I'm especially curious about the Wild Goose Chronicles. The Wild Goose Chronicles, I got this idea. I've always been interested in Timbuktu. And so I decided, oh, fuck it, I'm going to go. So I managed to, I'd written another book called Mondo, Utah, that had done okay. You know, none of these things do great, but it had done okay. And so a publisher said, okay, I'll fund your trip to Timbuktu. So it's a book. It's a, it's kind of a really goofy, strange psychedelic travelogue book of me on, on the, on my journey to Timbuktu <laughs> with a lot of other stuff in there too. But yeah, Timbuktu, what a place. Wow. Amazing place. Did it live up to your expectations? Well, yeah, it did. It was one of the most mysterious, wonderful, crazy places I've ever been. And I've been to a lot of places, but, you know, and I riding a camel into Timbuktu is quite an experience. How many projects are you working on at a time? Well, I don't know. Right now I've got a, I'm working on an opera about ants. <laughs> so I've been designing the sets. Uh, so that's one project I'm doing right now. I'm still, I'm trying to finish Echo People is another project. 
I started a little newspaper called the Salt Lake Tattler, which is kind of like uh, it's just on the Internet, but it's a it's sort of takes it's a tabloid. It's kind of like National Enquirer about Salt Lake City. I've been making books also more books that are that are just limited edition 10. I only make 10 copies. And I've got three or four of those going on. Photo of my photographs or my collages or things like that. I didn't even talk about the photography. I mean, that just is incredible in itself. You know, everything I do has absolutely no commercial potential. <laughs> Which is awesome. Your parents must have been so disappointed. <laughs> no, it's all right. I did want to get back to your photography. Have you done many shows and, and showings of it? I only one really. I had a, a retrospect at the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art where I, I was able to do photographs, posters, collages, and films. There's a lot of films I've made that are very short. You know, I've made over a hundred and probably 150 films. So a lot of them are short little things. Some of them are very experimental. Some of them are. It's kind of crazy documentaries and some of them are feature length things. And, uh, anyway, I was able to uh, have a kind of a comprehensive show where I was able to do, do a lot of that at the same time. I haven't really tried to have a show in a gallery after that or anything. It just seems I would love to, if it was a big gallery in New York or the U- New Museum of Fine Art, or, uh, then I would be interested, but to go out and try to do shows. In small galleries, I'm just not going to even go there because I have had shows at museums. I had a really interesting show at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. They showed the Beaver Trilogy because of, you know, are you familiar with Cindy Sherman, the photographer? Very famous. She's the most famous photographer in, in America by far right now. Anyway, she asked the museum to show my film in conjunction with her with her uh, show that she was doing she they did a series of strange films that she thought would go with her show what was that like for you when richard griffiths stands up and says you may not remember me at sundance yeah i mean i tried to get him to you know i hadn't seen him for over 20 years at that point and i knew he'd shot himself and all of that sort of stuff so and i'd send out uh, invitate or word would be the way, best way. I'd sent word down to Beaver that there were, cause I couldn't, I didn't have a TV or I mean, I didn't have a telephone number for him. So I, I sent out word that there were tickets for him at the theater and please come if you can. And he never picked up the tickets. So I didn't think he'd come. I didn't think he was there. And then after the, after the screening, there was the Q and A and then the people kind of filter out. And then all of a sudden he wanders up and says, you probably don't remember me. <laughs> And I started to hyperventilate and he started to hyperventilate and I grabbed him and we went out, saw out a side door and neither one of us could put together a sentence. It was like, Oh, God. and then all of these people had ran out the front door and come around to the back where we were. And they just surrounded us and started asking for his autograph and taking pictures of him. And he was just flabbergasted. He didn't know whether to be horrified or to be proud or to be, I think he was all of those things at the same time. It was quite a moment. It was quite a moment. He was a very special character for sure. Had he shot himself before you made the second installation, the the one with Sean Penn? 
Yeah, I mean, what happened was I'd filmed the documentary version, and I'd left a microphone in his car by accident. So I called up, got a hold of her. I think it was his mother or sister. I can't remember who, but she said, oh, Dick's not here. He shot himself. He's in the home. So it was just days after after we'd done the shoot, the documentary shoot. He did call me up and say, please don't make a movie out of that. I've had second thoughts. And I'm going, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. And then he shot himself. I mean, there's a very touching moment. I think to me, it's the best moment in Beaver Trilogy Part Four is what is the detail. His sister is talking about it uh, and she talks about the detail of him shooting himself. It was early, early in the morning and he shot himself in the chest and then he changed his shirt, went down to the breakfast table and sat there for a few minutes and then said, Dad, I shot myself. I'm sorry. That detail is so telling and wonderful. I mean, it's a horrible thing, but it's very, it gives you, it's, it's little moments like that are so loaded with context and, and meaning. Do you keep all of these ideas, you know, you're talking about how your your friend had the cat in the freezer and all this. Do you keep all these ideas just kind of swirling around in your head or do you journal everything out? I don't journal too much, but I'll do different. Well, actually, that's not true. I do journal a lot, but not that kind of a thing. For a while, I kept clipping files, and, and then I'll write down things and remember things, and, and somehow they'll kind of worm their way in, and that's sometimes much, much later. Sometimes years and years and years later, an idea will come to the surface. But I think the thing, I, I pay attention to what's going on around me, and I remember stuff, and I and I'm always looking at What's, you know, I don't understand people that always have their faces in the phone, in their phones. They're just, you know, get your face out of your phone and the, your butt out into the real world. It's so much more interesting. Mr. Harris, thank you so much. This is wonderful talking with you. I, like I said, I've been a fan for years and ordered from you and stuff. So this being able to actually have a conversation and an interview is just, it's been such a, a dream come true for me. Well, for me too, I really appreciate it. You know, I really, it's, I'm always amazed that people out there have even heard of these movies, quite frankly. It's very, it's very rewarding that, that, you know, people like yourself actually kind of care. It's like, wow, it makes it worthwhile. So I, I really do appreciate it. I want to say thank you. I know you were a student of Trent Harris's and when was that? I grew up in Salt Lake City. Growing up, Trent Harris was really, I, in eighth grade, I got a, a VHS and it was Ruben and Ed. And I thought Ruben and Ed was just incredible. It kind of fit in with like the age that I was at and like, you know, loving Billy Madison and, and loving Dumb and Dumber. And Ruben and Ed kind of just fit right into that. So I'd like go out of town and visit my family, my extended family in Colorado. And I would talk about Ruben and Ed and they had never heard of it. And I was always shocked that they hadn't heard of this movie. And then, it, you know, as I got older, I realized it was really just uh, kind of a local phenomenon. It was a local hit that it just, it was a VHS that had been bootlegged and bootlegged and bootlegged. And somehow I got one of those bootlegs. So when I got a little bit older and um, I wanted to kind of pursue film as a profession, one of the first places to turn to was Trent Harris's screenwriting class at the University of Utah. And he also did a screenwriting class at the Utah Film and Video Center. And so I did the, uh, the screenwriting class at the Utah Film and Video Center. And a part of that class was 
Trent showed the elements that became the Beaver trilogy as kind of here's a documentary and then here's the remake with Sean Penn and here's the remake with Crispin Glover. And he kind of showed that as like where an idea can come from and finding something real and then you can kind of dramatize it. So it wasn't too long after that that he released it as the Beaver trilogy and kind of blew up. And then obviously watching it really as the Beaver trilogy, it kind of was even more intriguing by watching the three of them play back to back to back because there was a lot of hidden conflict and intrigue just within that kind of simple presentation. How was that for you being such a fan of Ruben and Ed taking his screenwriting class and being able to interact with him? It was kind of a mix of, wow, I'm in the presence of greatness and oh, this guy's kind of clumsy. He he gave us his uh, storyboards for Ruben and Ed and it was like stick figures. So it was kind of like, this is awesome, but also shouldn't he be better at this sort of a feeling? But really now that I've gotten to know Trent a lot better, you know, Trent is who he is and it's actually kind of an endearing thing. But uh, when you think that it's going to be, you know, a really polished professional and then suddenly you get Trent Harris, it could be a little bit shocking. It was a, a lot of fun to be able to kind of pick his brain. And I was very young at the time and I was kind of naive and I think I was a, a go-getter and asking him, you know, how do you become a, a big movie director? And he just simply said, like, go get a camera and make a movie sort of an answer. And I was like, I already know that. Can you give me more info? But the more I've been in the film world, it is really good advice. And it really is as simple as that. Just go get a camera and make a movie. And you don't know, you know, where you're starting. You don't know where you're ending, but it's really kind of a, a fun journey to go on. And, and that is kind of the process of filmmaking. There was a lot of really good nuggets that he was able to give me. And it's taken time for me to kind of appreciate them properly. So what year is this that you're taking the screenwriting class? This is probably the year 2000. This might have been the summer of the year 2000. Also, while I was taking this screenwriting class, I got an internship with the Utah Jazz, the jazz TV station, K-Jazz Productions. So I started filming. First, it was the, the summer was University of Utah football games. Then we got into the basketball season with the Utah Jazz games. And I guess I was probably 18 and I was interning and I, I really went for it. You know, I'd stay late and so I could learn how to edit and, you know, would always be pestering them so that they would teach me how to use the camera. And then uh, after about 18 months, there was a position that opened up and I was hired basically for the jazz productions. And so I stayed there for four years uh, and it was a really great training experience for me. It was television moves really fast. So you've got to work fast. I was doing a lot of the, the halftime shows or there's, there's a thing called a tease open where they'd, you know, say, Carl Malone's going to take on the Sacramento Kings and you got to love it, baby. That kind of very quick sort of montage um, music video stuff. So I would crank through one of those a day, shoot the games. It was a lot of fun, but it wasn't the end goal. So after that, I went, I went to Chicago, went to film school in Chicago and was there for about four years doing commercials and have, uh, been in LA ever since uh, 2008. When does your life intersect again with Trent Harris and with the Beaver Trilogy? The Beaver Trilogy naturally brings up some very obvious questions. You have the first documentary, you have Groove and Gary, this kind of larger than life person, 
who, and you know it's a documentary. I think you understand. I understood it was a documentary. And then it fades to black. It comes back, and you have Sean Penn, really young Sean Penn, Spicoli Sean Penn, doing a rendition of the original film. And then, of course, you have Crispin Glover, who Crispin Glover was also kind of a big icon in Salt Lake City. He had worked with a lot of the co-collaborators that Trent had worked with, David Brothers being probably the biggest one. And so Crispin was also kind of a big icon for me. And so you see Crispin Glover and you and then you ask, you know, what happened to that original kid, the the kid that was larger than life, the kid that was from Beaver. You know, even if you were doing a Google search back then, you didn't really get any answers. And then there's a, a lot of other things within the film. There's these scenes where the kid's about to kill himself and you're asking, like, why is that in there? So these kind of questions really sat with me for a lot of years, you know, a decade, maybe even more. So I think I started this uh, film in 2011. It was probably 11 years that I had these questions. I had kind of gathered some of the answers, but, you know, as I'm going to film school, Beaver Trilogy is starting to play kind of the art circuits. And so it's it stopped in Chicago and was a hit in Chicago. I brought all of my friends from film school to watch this movie. We're having such great dialogue about it. Six months later, it plays at a different art house cinema. Six months later, it's so it's constantly kind of coming back into my life. And then at film school, we met, uh, me and my friends, uh, Vince Clemente and Dan Billups, we met this kind of eccentric outsider artist named Z. He kind of led us into his life, and that somehow turned into a four-year documentary where we documented Z's outsider art and what inspired his outsider art, and that became the world of Z. And so we played that. It won some awards. It did pretty well. And that kind of inspired me, like, what's the next movie I'm going to make? I went back to Salt Lake. I think I actually saw Trent at a coffee shop and I went up to him and talked to him and he, I said, I was in your screenwriting class. And he said, Oh, he clearly had no memory of me, but just that little interaction. I, I asked him if he would be interested in doing, I, I think I told him I was just going to do a little documentary series, which is something that I had been toying with. And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. And so we went up there and we interviewed him. And also I got the wild idea of just going down to Beaver and trying to figure out, you know, what happened to the kid by just going down there. There was still pretty clear that um, the wounds were fresh for Dick Griffith's family and that they simultaneously didn't want anything to do with it, but also really, really, really wanted to tell his story, which is kind of great for, for a documentary because it's kind of inherent conflict. So we went down there and we were there for three days and got some pretty incredible stories. And the deeper I, I dug into this, the more it kind of fleshed itself out. And then, of course, in the first 10 minutes of talking to Trent, he said he didn't want to talk about the Beaver trilogy. So you could see that there was still things. I mean, there's some natural conflict, too. So the more he said he didn't want to talk about the Beaver trilogy, the more I was like, I've got to get the story of the Beaver trilogy out there. So, And really, I kind of shot them. I, I don't think I would do it any other way, but it seems a little bit like um, sneaky filmmaking. I shot Trent never telling him that I was doing a Beaver Trilogy documentary or that I was going to interview his family. And then I shot the family really telling him that I was going to do the Groove and Gary story. 
it was a little bit misleading, but I think by the time the Beaver Trilogy Part 4 played at Sundance, everybody was very happy about it. And um, Dick Griffith's family actually met Trent Harris for the first time on stage at our premiere at Sundance. It was kind of a magical moment. Everyone's kind of hugging and crying. It was it was a Q&A to remember for sure. So it all worked out in the end. So you said you started this around 2011 and it premiered, what, 2015? Was that when it was showed at Sundance? Yeah. And that was, that was a product of, of really in 2011, I was able to film Trent Harris. I was able to film the Beaver Kids family as well as friends. We got, we got a number of interviews from Beaver those few days in Beaver. It took me a long time to really get footage. There's a whole process of trying to, trying to get footage, get footage cleared. Um, also, I wanted to get some kind of additional interviews. You know, we got Starly Kind from This American Life, you know, Trevor Groth, who used to be the director of programming at Sundance. And so, and a lot of those interviews was just me with a camera going in, sitting down, setting, being the cameraman and the interviewer. And I remember Trevor looking at me like, are you guys making a real documentary or is this just you with a camera? And for the most part, it was really just me with a camera. And then along the way, Trent was interested in doing I, you know, I kind of hounded Trent for, for years. So I would kind of check back with him a year later and he said, you know, let's go out to the desert. If you really want to get to know who Trent Harris is, let's go out to the desert. So we had kind of these fun adventures out in the desert. And, you know, a year later I come back and he says, well, if you really want to know who Trent Harris is, maybe you should go out to Cambodia. So now I'm, I'm broke, but yet spending all this money to go to Cambodia for a story that doesn't really fit into the Beaver trilogy, but yet parts of it probably do because it really gets to know who Trent is. So I was able to find um, John Morris, the piano player, and he's a, he's lives in Vegas and he's a teacher. He's a, a theater teacher. And he was just completely so articulate and so well-spoken. And he had such insight into who Dick Griffiths was and that kind of impulse, the dreamer's impulse and in wanting to be a star, but also, you know, there's certain, there's a certain dark side that comes with that. And I think that that was the kind of theme that was really emerging in the film was, it was the kind of the story of the dreamer and the trials and tribulations and ultimately the celebration of once you think you're, you're at rock bottom, you know, then the Beaver trilogy plays at Sundance. The Beaver kid goes up there and without expecting it, suddenly becomes a star. It's kind of this, you know, really amazing part of the Beaver trilogy that I really wanted Beaver trilogy part four to kind of explore. As you're making this, you're seeing Trent Harris's creative process and just the interesting way that things will come together for him and turn into different ideas, different projects. You're an editor by trade. You're directing this documentary, your second feature documentary. You are creating this as you're going along and I'm curious for you, how much of this are you allowing to be organic as you're making it? Or how much are you trying to edit things together in your head while you're putting this together and saying, oh, this will go great with this thing? Or do you just try to block that out and say, I'll worry about it when I get into the editing room? The latter, yeah. I mean, when we were in Cambodia, almost all of the time there, I was saying, what in the hell am I doing here? 
because if it's going to be a story strictly about the Beaver trilogy, then you definitely don't need to have this tangent in Cambodia. And I think part of the film, I think for some people, it kind of plays that way. I had collected so many, so many interviews and so much kind of nuance to the story that my first cut was probably three plus hours long. I thought I was going to have a multi-part series sort of a thing and only to play it for friends and, and have them not care about, you know, who Trent's girlfriend was and how that's reflected in the girlfriends of Ruben and Ed, all of that kind of stuff. So I got really deep into it. I had a lot of tunnel vision. And um, for about nine months in 2014, I didn't do anything except for Beaver Trilogy editing. When you watch the movie, it doesn't look like it would be that complicated, but it was a complicated process for me. It took me a long time to really figure things out and figure out a structure that would work. There's a lot of questions about when to reveal things. And I think in the, yeah, in the final product, it, it just kind of flows, but, uh, it was a, it was a real passion project for me. It still kind of is, you know, even if I watch it again, sometimes we'll have little screenings, you know, all over the place, places they want to play Beaver Trilogy and they also want to play Beaver Trilogy part four. And sometimes they'll invite me out there and I'll watch it again. And it kind of takes me right back there. It's part of the making of it didn't even feel real. It kind of feels like a a dream that I'm, I'm now awake from, but that process of making the film was a dream. When do you decide that you're going to need a narrator to tell this story? Very early on. I was hoping that the narrator would give it that kind of levity and fill in some of those gaps. So for a long time, I had me narrating, but I really can't stand the sound of my voice. So I started this kind of ridiculous process of typing it into the text edit on a Mac and it would read back, you know, you could get it to read in this kind of British accent. And so I had this robot British accent for a long time finally for our submission for Sundance. So I had to, I had to get a real narrator and my friend Ted Evans did the mock-up of it. And our uh, producer Kelly Williams said, I kind of like the robot narrator because he had seen it so many times and he's like, maybe even robot narrator, but eventually it got accepted to Sundance. And so we were rushing around to try and see, you know, if somebody else would be interested. And we found out that, that Bill Hader really liked the Beaver trilogy, would be interested in taking a look at it. He, he, I guess he watched the movie, you know, thought it'd be fun. And I think he's so used to kind of just jumping into a VO booth that he kind of, he really knocked it out quick. I don't think we did more than two takes of any, any line. And we, we didn't want it to be kind of like Bill Hader as Bill Hader. We kind of wanted this like very proper sort of, sort of narrator. And so he kind of went in there and just did his very kind of proper narrator voice and he just jumped right into it nailed it we cut it in that night and then i shipped off to chicago where we were doing our audio mixing with our our audio mixer steven aguilar and then uh, we did our final color at stuck on on in austin and then went right up to sundance from there so it was you know once we got accepted to sundance it was like a 22 hour a day sort of race to the finish line. And after Sundance, I had spent so much adrenaline that I just got, I was so sick. I got, I got a cold at Sundance and for about three weeks, I was just coughing and sniffling and, but it was, it was all worth it. You know, Bill Hader said that he had discovered Beaver Trilogy by being at Paul Rudd's house and Paul Rudd, I guess, has a collection of of films and Paul Rudd was, he's like, you've got to watch this film Beaver Trilogy. And so, and then at Sundance, 
you know, we had so many people asking us for tickets and out of the blue, we have James Franco asking us for tickets because James Franco really loves the Beaver trilogy. He got onto the Beaver trilogy when he was making milk with Sean Penn and, and has constantly been joking with Sean Penn about it. And also it was kind of funny. I think he was kind of trying to see what Beaver trilogy part four would be about because I think he was trying to make the disaster artist. So it's kind of, how do you make a movie about a movie? So it's kind of a cult film, but also it, I think it's, it's reached pretty far. And there's a lot of people still talking about Beaver trilogy. You know, it's 1979 was when it started. 2000 is when it was released or when it played at Sundance. And now it's 2020. 40 years have gone by and still this kind of this thing has, uh, you know, has legs. So how are you making a living while you're doing this, this four year process of putting this together? I was also working on a, an IMAX 70 millimeter documentary about airplanes called living in the age of airplanes. And so that was a long process that took us about, I think it was 27 months to edit. And so we were on that for many years. So that really kept me afloat. And then, um, on top of that, I was I was also editing for Mattel. Um, there's these things called viabilities, which is like a, a fake commercial that they kind of show to uh, to their test audience children. So they'll they'll have a toy, they'll make a fake commercial for it, they'll put it in front of a test audience of children, and the kids either like it or don't like it, or why doesn't the kid like it, and oh, he doesn't like it that it's red, that kind of a thing. So. For a period of time, I was doing these kind of fake commercials just to kind of stay afloat so that I could finish this movie. What was it like when you finally were able to show this at Sundance before you got sick? It was a dream come true. It really was. I mean, growing up in Salt Lake, Sundance was such an inspiration. And I had also been a volunteer at Sundance for many, many, many years. Actually, there's some B-roll shots. The Beaver Trilogy was played at Sundance, and I just needed some kind of generic b-roll shots and so before my volunteer shift at sundance i would bring my camera in and i would get a few shots here and then the next day i'd come in and get a few more shots in this area to go from being you know a volunteer at sundance to the next year having beaver trilogy play at sundance and for it to be so well received you know it was a dream come true and it's it's kind of a a high that I'm still chasing. I'm not sure how to get back to that kind of real moment of glory. But yeah, it was a dream come true. And it was so fun to go on to the, all the press junkets being with Trent. And Trent was always telling me, and he probably should be telling me on this one to just say less because less is going to be more. That's why I was, I was talking to you about trying to be on with Trent because Trent has such a kind of a charisma and a, and a nonchalance about these things that he so deeply cares about where I'm still trying to learn how to, uh, how to be nonchalant about these, these kind of true passions that are kind of all, all encompassing. It was a dream come true. We, we went to all the, the little press junkets. We went to, you know, there was uh photo sessions for the filmmakers and all of that kind of stuff. And, yeah, and for the premiere for um, Grooving Gary's family, Dick Griffith's family, to be there and to meet Trent and to have it happen in front of everybody, it was really kind of a a magical experience. So, so it was fantastic. What were some of those major discoveries for you? What were those? I hate to use Oprah's term, but those aha moments as you're making this, going, "Oh my God, this is got to be in the film. This is going to be a." major thing? 
it would be listen to your visitors. I, I was finding that Trent throughout his entire life, you know, the Beaver trilogy started by him going out in the parking lot and shooting a test tape and somehow getting into this brilliant and wonderful conversation with a kid from Beaver who was coming up to try and be on TV and then for Trent to make that, that dream a reality by just seeing him and, and exploring like what could, what is, who is this kid? I've got to go figure out who this kid is. And he kind of does that throughout his work. And even, I think he kind of lives that way too. I think that he would probably cringe at me saying this, but he's, he's an artist and he, he really, you know, pays attention to his surroundings. He pays attention to people. He understands people. That was kind of one of the big things for me that really comes through in the film and really kind of is, is a takeaway for me. Was there a physical media release of this? Was there a DVD? Beaver Trilogy Part 4 did have a release. It was purchased by The Orchard. It had a Netflix run for three years. Uh, currently, it's on Amazon Prime, but it did not have a physical media release. I think we're still trying to figure out its physical me- media release and hopefully that will happen in the next few years. And how about you? What are you working on now? I know you're still doing a lot of editing, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Are you working on another documentary? I'm editing for Netflix on a a film for Netflix, and I've been kind of editing the last five years on more narrative-based films. I have a lot of films that I have going around in my head, all of them at different phases of script writing, and I have a couple of documentaries that that I would love to... um, to tackle. And one of them would actually be the Utah jazz because I had my four years there and I'm just, I've just watched the Michael Jordan 10 part documentary and the, the jazz plays such a big part of it that I really think that it would be fun to uh, start to look at it from the other side and, and start to see some of those, uh, those characters and some of the, the drama, the behind the scenes drama for uh, the Utah jazz for those same years. So that's something I'm toying with. Not sure it's um, in the near future. It might be five years from now because it takes me a long time to really get these things off the ground and, and really uh, fine tune them to the point that they can actually be seen. So is there a good way for people to keep up on you and your projects? Yeah. Follow us uh, Beaver Trilogy on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. So we're out there, social media, so take a look. Reuben Farr needed company. That's it. Why don't you get out of this house and make yourself a friend? No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Ed Tuttle needed customers. Excuse me. That's off. You've got a big problem, Ed. <laughs> Fate brought them together. Hello, Reuben. What a tremendous day. What say we motor on over to the seminar and get you started on the express to success? Nope. I guess you're pretty broken up about your cat. Why don't you keep your hands off other people's refrigerators? Why don't you bury your cat in sea? We can save water. You don't need to bury him out in the desert. He'll be frost. Like in the ice. That's a good idea. So they hit the road. This is the perfect spot to bury a cat. Any cat in their right mind would be happy as a clam to be buried here. Now you have to admit that. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I don't have to admit anything. Let's stall and bury the cat. Is this the right spot? It's going to get weird now. You have to be back before the seminar is over. 
talking about the Beaver Trilogy. Moreover, I want to take a little bit of time and talk about some of Trent Harris's other films. He continued making movies and is still making movies, but per Brad Besser's interview, Trent had quite a reputation based on his other works, Planned Time from Outer Space and Ruben and Ed. I don't know how I missed the Ruben and Ed train when it was out. I, like you, Rain, I saw that interview on Late Night with David Letterman, I had no idea that it was tied into a movie performance or a character or anything. So, like you and like Dave, I was completely taken aback. I knew that this was going to happen, and I, uh, <laughs> I go, can I tell you, because the, the press, they can do things, they can twist things around, and because you're talking, I don't, look, I... The press says things about you in 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 the in the paper. This is a a paper, the L.A. Weekly in in Los Angeles, and they said they said about me a lot a da. It was at a, I went to a club, and they said that um, it was at a meeting, and it said Crispin Glover, who was in a frenzy, though his bark is actually worse than his dot dot dot. You get the point. Mm-hmm. And Paul, anything then, uh, you'd like to add here? <laughs> And then another one, they said, they said, they said, they said, Crispin Glover. Paul, is this, pins- is this the first time you've seen another guy drown? Is this, this the first time you've watched a guy die? Is that you're talking about you or Yeah, you? no, me. This is, this is the other thing they said. Crispin Glover was pinstriped and greased up for the occasion, impressing the girl things who are trying to get next to him. Guess some people are turned on by brill cream. Yeah, well. Do you want to arm wrestle? No. I'm taking, no, no I'm taking parties aren't mine. I can, I can, I can kick. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to go check on the top ten. No, I... That Letterman appearance was quite a few years before Ruben and Ed came out, so I don't, I don't think even after I saw Ruben and Ed, I put two and two together that it was him doing that character in an Andy Kaufman style stunt. When I watch it now, it almost feels like like a film built out of that character, that Crispin Glover created that character. And Ruben and Ed at times feels like an SNL adaptation of one of the skit characters, like when they make a movie out of it, like if they, you know, and they make a movie out of this character that he created for this crazy talk show appearance. Because it's definitely like a little bit three or four years ahead of the curve to be promoting Ruben and Ed this way. Well, yeah, I think Harris says that it was a character that 
Glover had been working on. So I didn't know what the timeline was either. Cause yeah, you're, you're right. That had to have been like what late eighties, the Letterman appearance. And I think Ruben and Ed was, am I thinking right? 91 ish. The appearance was 87. It's like River's Edge, River's Edge era. And then like the Ruben and Ed came out at the time of like the LA riots. Like, was that like 91? Ruben and Ed would have been perfect for me to see. So I don't know why I missed it, how I missed it, because that was the time when I was seeing, you know, just bizarre little films, some bigger than others. I mean, I'm thinking like at college, I was seeing Slacker. I was seeing um, my own private Idaho. How did the State Theater or the the Ann Arbor 1 and 2 not have Ruben and Ed playing for at least a week? You know, how could I have missed this, especially being a Crispin Glover fan and and seeking out stuff that he was doing, where it's just like, oh, he's in this for five minutes? Okay, yeah, I'll watch it. And here it's him and uh, Howard Hessman squaring off against each other. I was just floored by this movie. I was so happy to see it. And what a quotable flick as well. Just... I think everything that Crispin Clever says should be a quote, should be on a t-shirt someplace. My cat can eat a whole watermelon. There are certain type of comedy that I associate with the cult sections of video stores in the late 80s and early 90s. And I'm thinking of films like Static, the Keith Gordon film, or The Dark Backward, Tapeheads, um, Meet the Applegates even, um, filmmakers like Richard Elfman, Alex Cox, Stephen Sadian. I think of things like Sam Raimi's Crime Wave. I don't know they ever had a chance in theaters, but you go into any cult section of a, of a hip video store, you'd find all of those films. I don't know who they play to now. It's like an equivalent kind of filmmaking, like like a certain kind of dark, exaggerated comedy that is only going to appeal to like five out of 50 people, but that those five people will, you know, rent it over and over again or buy it. Ruben and Ed was something I definitely found in the cult section. And it was after I'd been looking for it, like actively looking for it. It was hard to find it. Um, even though, you know, it was a major studio film and Crispin Glover was still kind of a name. I think the studio just decided to bury it and they've never really had much interest in doing anything with it since that VHS release, as far as I know. But yeah, it feels like the ultimate Crispin Glover cult movie in a way, because it is like, it's it's the character from his most legendary talk show appearance as a you know in a buddy comedy. Yeah, this is right around the time you talked about his appearance in The Doors and Rainy might have mentioned when he shows up in like um a hotel room or um Wild at Heart. So it's like yeah, this is prime time Crispin Glover and yeah, I don't understand why this one is as you said, buried. It really appeals to me. And that stupid cat and the special effects of the cat, especially during the uh, water skiing scene, it really floored me. I couldn't get over how much I liked this film. Yeah, I remember when I first saw it, it was still kind of concurrent with the SNL Toonses, the driving cat. And so, like, I, I, it was very easy just to, to go between the two in my head a lot. You know, it's Toonses maybe behind that water skiing, right? Water skiing cat. Have you all had a, a chance to see Plan 10 from Outer Space? <sighs> so good. I was really happy with that movie as well. Just that... It's so deadpan and it's just rain. It is just so steeped in Mormonism. It just feels like, and I'm just like, okay, do they know they're being made fun of or are people embracing this who are Mormons? It's just, it feels like a really strange marriage. Like you're making this in Salt Lake City. I'm surprised it didn't drive you out with pitchforks and torches. 
And apparently they loved it. Apparently that's, you know, that was the home turf for it. And they were going to see it in droves, right? What else could I want than vaporizing the statue of Brigham Young and having basically a matriarchy takeover? Like this, <laughs> this is, this is my film. I was like, this, this is amazing. Karen Black's in charge. I'm all about this movie. <laughs> Stephane Russell, the lead actress, I think she's hilarious in it too. And, and it's such a great contrast. I mean, Ruben and Ed really doesn't have a lot of time for its women characters. And so to have the neurotic repressed hero be, you know, this kind of Nancy Drew, I think Nancy Drew on acid was how I re- described in one review. <laughs> it was just uh, amazing. And just, I, I don't know. I thought it was like a, a really nice surprise because what I, you know, when I read about it, I thought, Oh God, like, you know, an Ed Wood kind of knockoff from this guy. Cause like, you know, I, I, I didn't know that it had nothing in common with plan nine from outer space. When I first read about it, I just knew that he had made this film that barely got released that has the title that evokes plan nine. So I'm like, okay, well, that's too bad. You know, I just assumed it wasn't any good, but then, you know, when I saw it, I'm like, oh, this is actually really funny and sweet and like so specific in its humor and idiosyncratic that, you know, I'm not a lapsed Mormon. So I feel like the jokes are not landing at me as well as they would for it's, you know, in Salt Lake City, but it's still uh, really unsmug about itself kind of quirky comedy, which I really liked very much. I do like that it's not a, um, not a mean film. You know, they mentioned this in the documentary as well, that, you know, it's not, it's not mean spirited. And there's like no way I could have made that film and make it not mean spirited because I've just got so much pent up rage about my childhood. I mean, it makes it better, right? It just, it, it helps bring people in on the joke and it's not just a completely reactive sort of a thing. At the same time, I mean, I, I, I wrote down so many little quotes when I watched it this time around. Um, you know, like when she says, but you have to admit, it would certainly explain a lot about Salt Lake City, right? <laughs> I know it's, it's so far removed from Scientology, but it reminds me of Scientology or vice versa, just because they both feel like they're science fiction religions. Just the way that since the things in the Bible allegedly took place like thousands of years ago, whereas Mormonism is such an American phenomenon, and it's just like, oh, I have this bag, and I can see these plates, and I will do And I guess maybe, too, because the two episodes of South Park, one about Mormonism and one about Scientology, are basically the same episode. I mean, they're so similar, and it's just so playing a sci-fi comedy against Mormonism just felt like it was the most natural marriage to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's 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 definitely a science fiction kind of religion or an American religion, and maybe America is a science fiction nation. Who knows? But you know, it's 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 a natural fit, and I feel like it. But that's the difference. I would think between something like South Park and something like Plan Ten, South Park is out for blood at every stage, right? And Plan Ten from Outer Space is just like actually, this is just the circumstance in which we live. And I think one of the things that I think is interesting, I think this is connected with Reuben and Ed, I think it connects with the Beaver trilogy, all of it, is that it it brings out this like desert mentality, right? You know, I think just being somebody from the desert, you can call it crazy, there's like a desert craziness, but it's like, that's definitely part of the epistemology of all of these films in a way that, you know, they wouldn't be if they were attempting to be urban, for example. They were, they were attempting to be an East Coast film or even a U- U.S. South kind of a film. 
That's so interesting that you bring that up because that was one thing that I noticed with the Orkley kid versus the other two takes on that story was that the desert plays a part in it with the opening with him doing the Olivia number in the darkness of the desert. And then my memory of Ruben and Ed, because it had been a while since I had seen it, was all I remembered was the part that feels like like a more absurd version of Jerry. You know, that Gus Van Sant movie with like the two characters just in the desert, like having a strange kind of uh, endless adventure. I didn't even remember anything but the desert scenes, you know, until I rewatched it for this uh, podcast. Yeah, I just remember it being like all the desert hallucinatory stuff. And then, yeah, I mean, I know that he has other features after Plan 10. I don't know. They sound like they would have that same kind of quality, even though I, I, I don't know if that's accurate. Yeah, and I haven't seen any of the later films myself either. I would really, really, really like to, especially after seeing the, the documentary. I think I'm going to have to invest and uh, pick up like Luna Mesa and Welcome to the Rubber Room, and uh, maybe we'll have to revisit those and uh, come together again for another episode, because people talk about Gus Van Zandt, or they'll talk about Tim Burton, and it's just like, oh yeah, it's this, they're, the main characters are always these outsiders, but then you look at Beaver Kid and Plan 10 and, and Ruben and Ed, and you're just like, yeah, no, these guys are really outsiders. These are the, the people that really could not or do not function that well in society. So it makes it even more interesting to have a movie where these are your protagonists. Well, they're pursuing something different, you know, in terms of the marketplace. You know, Gus Van Zandt is still looking for a career as a director, right, in everything that he's doing. Um, whereas Trent Harris, obviously, he's directing, but, like, he's not, he's not going for part of the machine. So it becomes a question of, like, what are, you know, what are you doing? And I think about what he says in the documentary a lot. He talks, he mentions a couple of times this uh, mantra of listening to your visitors. That could be something to really wrestle with if you're wrestling with an idea of being an exploiter by trying to like have a career by presenting people and doing these sorts of things. But at the same time, you know, listening to your visitors is really going to help guide you in some new and interesting ways like the Beaver Trilogy ends up being. Yeah, that was one thing I really did not expect from the Beaver Trilogy Part 4 was how Trent Harris actually gets his ideas and puts these pieces together. And that's always fascinating because everybody does it in a different way. And just to see somebody who's created these things that I do admire so much, just to hear how he will put these things together, write things down, come up with an idea here, add it to an idea there. And just this interesting mathematical equation he has before he comes up with something that actually is born was really a a neat thing to, to see that process. That was interesting. Also, just like the way that the politics kind of creep in steadily over the course of his work, from what I can tell, too, because I, I think my memory of, you know, something like Ruben and Ed is, you know, like water skiing cats and people drinking sweat, you know, from shoes and like not really anything that's like, oh, it's also satirizing Reagan. You know, it's also satirizing Republicans. It's also, you know, making fun of, of, of that kind of like Reagan era ambitious you know, money, money, money kind of thing in a way that reminds me of things like even like um certain like later 80s John Carpenter, where it's like the people going to see this movie are psychotronic cult movie types. They're not necessarily going for a political movie, but there are political things hidden in it. And Plan 10 also has like, I mean, this kind of like ribbing of the Mormon religion. And, you know, in the years where like he's pretty much abandoned all you know, hopes of maintaining a big movie career as a Hollywood director, like the politics seem to like sweep over him as, you know, as far as like, you know, the Cambodia and all that. And I think that that from 
again, like I can't speak with knowledge on like the later films, but it feels like that, you know, informs, uh, I don't, did you, did either of you see Echo People, the, um, the Ruben and Ed spinoff thing he's doing now on YouTube? I've watched one part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Those are interesting too. I mean, those, those actually feel, well, I, I, I say like the politics are growing, but then it, like, yeah, though, that does feel like a return to Ruben and Ed, but like not as, um, maybe not as grotesque as as the Crispin Glover you know like that like it, it's it's a it's still got that same kind of humor lots of non sequitur gags and like verbal just like stubborn <laughs> like characters but it's um i don't know it's it's kind of sweet it has the the woman uh from uh plan 10 as uh as the lead character uh Stephane Russell I don't know. I, I think if, if someone is hearing this and doesn't know that it exists, but like Ruben and Ed, I mean, they're for free. You know, you can see them for free on uh, Trent Harris's YouTube channel and they're, they're pretty funny and they're, and they're only 20 minutes long. So they don't overstay their welcome. Well, I'll be sure to link to those in the show notes for today's episode. I only want to talk about um, the Kuchars because I haven't mentioned them yet. And I really feel like the ethical underpinnings of Trent Harris really resonated with a lot of things that I've seen, especially with interviews that I saw with George Kuchar, you know, which is something, you know, so unique. Like you don't expect to see um, pensiveness and thoughtfulness out of psychotronic filmmakers. You know, it's not like what you really want to tend to lead with. You expect them all to be like Lloyd Kaufman, right? I love that there's like a spiritual angle to this, like an ethical, a deeply ethical angle to all of this. And it makes me want to go back and really look at these these films with completely new eyes, like all of these years later, even Ruben and Ed. And yeah, I wish to hell that they would come out with a better version of that. I mean, at least we still have the shitty VHS version that floats around, and you can probably find it on YouTube, but it'd be nice. I mean, it looks like he really took care with the camera work. It looks like the desert scenes would have been really gorgeous. It would have been nice to see that way, and hopefully one of these days we'll have that opportunity. He does have that spiritual nature, and I'm kind of glad that we don't live in a world of just all Lloyd Kaufmans, that so many people are there more pursuing their passion. And I mean, even to the point where it's like, you know, like a Neil Breen, the guy has something that he wants to say, and he's using film to say it. And all of the films mean so much to him. It's not just a money-making kind of thing. It's not just there for commerce, where I feel like Lloyd is a lot of times there for Lloyd and there for the commerce. There are times where it's just like, okay, enough. You don't have to plug Poultrygeist one more time. I get it. Well, I want to thank my co-host Rain and Bill for coming on this episode. So, Bill, what is keeping you busy these days? Um, well, I'm, I'm working on questions for, uh, some upcoming supporting characters interviews. So it is coming back after a year away. Um, you can still find my, uh, my old episodes and my Blue Velvet podcast from the neighborhood, www.nowplayingnetwork.net. I co-wrote a book a few months ago with uh, Amanda Reyes that comes with the, um, Severn Films Al Adamson Masterpiece collection box set called Blood and Flesh Files. That's out now. And, um, if you have $200 hanging around and you really like Al Adamson, you should invest in a copy before they're all gone. I did some podcasts. I just did a Hysteria Continues and a Tracks of the Damned. And I'm working on some home video projects that haven't been announced yet, so I can't say. But yeah, working on a lot of stuff. And Rain, how is everything down in Charm City? Everything's good, you know, homebound like everybody, but uh, I'm about to, I'm entering my last year of my MFA program in um, Intermedia and Digital Art, so I've got a thesis to do, so that's going to be exciting. I've got some performances and 
some things like that going on. I'm hoping to get um, some music out with uh, from my band, Santa Labrada, um, that we recorded just before quarantine happened. So we're trying to move some move some things along, even though we're all in our little ronicules at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, getting my MFA, and then who knows what's going to happen after that. The world is going to be your oyster. Look at her; she's got an MFA. Come on inside. We got That's a job right. waiting for you. That's right. She needs an adjunct job. Well, thanks again, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.